Alright, so let's start with the rapid fire, the first one. Describe what your organization does in one sentence. Help businesses communicate with customers. How long does it take you to get ready in the mornings? 25 minutes. Most valuable skill you've learned in life? Explaining things. City in which the best kiss of your life happened? Dublin. How many speakers can you name at this conference? 25. Name some. Rosvana Bashir, um, oh, uh, the First Lady of Ukraine, me, Hubert. Okay. In one sentence, describe one problem that your organization is facing. 2022. <laughs> How do you relax? I play soccer and exercise. A habit of yours that you hate? Using the word like in my sentences. Work from home or work from office? Office. Most embarrassing moment of your life? At this conference when my clicker wouldn't work, that was pretty embarrassing. How many hours of sleep can you survive on? Ooh, six. Your favorite app? Bear the note-taking app. Biggest mistake of your career? Enrolling in a PhD that I did not finish. What was it then? Computer science education. First movie that comes to your mind when I say the word technology? Hackers. How many cups of coffee do you drink in a day? Five. Your favorite Netflix show? I was going to say Game of Thrones, but it's not on Netflix. Um, Afterlife for Ricky Gervais. One thing you want to say to Elon Musk for having bought Twitter? Good luck. <laughs> okay, so that's the end of the rapid fire. I'm going to go on to the bigger questions now. Uh, the first one is, uh, how do you deal with competition and copycats? And how do you view the large number of companies that have added chat? So competition and copycats I see as different things. Um, I have respect for competition. I have less respect for copycats, but I understand the role of copycats. I know what they're trying to do. And, you know, sometimes it's a good strategy like the it's formalized in like Harvard Business Review language as like the fast follower strategy, right? Um, how do I deal with competition? I, I honestly like, so the, the, the cliched thing that I'm supposed to say to you right now is we don't care about the competition. We just talk to our customers, right? That's like the, this sort of 101 how to speak press uh, answer to the question. And maybe I'll just try and like assume I think all the stuff that everyone else does. Uh, but I'll also just maybe add like, it's useful to understand how the industry and the landscape is evolving around you. And it's useful to see where your competitors are, uh, are you know, digging or investing or like experimenting because that they will find stuff. Like generally speaking, all of our competitors have massive respect for, they're like great companies, you know, it, it should be no surprise. So you have to assume that they're doing some good stuff and and that they will have some hits and those hits will change the landscape so you do have to be kind of quite aware of it so i think the idea is like yes you listen to your customers and yes you have your own opinions about the world but you don't ignore the reality of the landscape that's changing under your feet as well with copycats i think you have to work out like oftentimes people try to do a, a copycat of intercom and what they find they like they, most of them like 
they last a couple of years and they struggle or they find a, a weird niche at the very bottom of the market or in, a, or in a very specific vertical like you know intercom for hotels or something like that um generally speaking uh you, you don't like if it's a pure pixel ripoff copycat and we've had some like pretty big ones over the years as well um i think in general they're just following your roadmap because their customers are looking at you uh if they have an edge over you like something like hey well they're attached to something else that makes sense or they're an extension of a product that already exists or whatever you you know you have to you know you watch your own customer base behavior and, and if they seem to think that there's value over there then you need to react to that if they don't think there's value over there and this person's just find a new type found a new type of customer that you weren't previously prioritizing kind of like let it happen i think like there's a phrase i often come back to which is like startups die by suicide not homicide and uh, I think it's Paul Graham or someone like that said it wrong, Conway, maybe. But the, um, you know, it's not what they do to you. It's what you do to yourself in reaction to, to it is often what hurts you in, in these cases. So I think it's more important to, like, stick to your principles. And just, like, if they find a significant edge that is unique and you actually credibly believe customers should switch, then you have to react. And reaction usually looks like roadmaps or service adjustment or marketing adjustment or whatever. But, like, uh, but most of the time, if you're in a, you know, if you're operating from a position of strength and you actually believe in your own company and believe in your own team, uh, you you should kind of tune out copycats, but you should always observe the competitive landscape. So ironically, it is then also a game of copying from your copycats as well. Yeah, them in view. Yeah, work out what what did they see. So like a classic example of the of the intercom copycat would be we're intercom, but we're like four dollars a month or whatever, and like that like that always has this what I call like false traction moment. Everyone signs up and they're like, holy shit, this thing's only four bucks a month. And then inevitably they run straight into a wall of reliability problems, service problems, support problems, like downtime. It's like, turns out operating like live chat and, and like uh, operating chatbots and messengers and email and push and SMS and all that sort of stuff for like hundreds of millions of, of uh, people in real time every month is expensive. You have to pay a lot of money to Amazon or to Azure or whoever, right? And uh, and then, of course, wh wh where does that money come from? Well, it comes from the money you're making off your customers. And at $4 a month, that's not profitable, right? Like, there's a reason why, say, like, the, you know, the, the Holiday Inn isn't disruptive to the Four Seasons, right? They're just two different businesses with two different service models. And you, you, know, you shouldn't try and kill your business by trying to stretch to cover both. So sometimes they will find an edge or an angle that makes sense for a specific cohort of customers. But oftentimes, they're experiencing like a, a, like a kind of a false, um, false birth or a false moment where like they think that they're kicking off, but actually their problems are only beginning. So speaking of Intercom itself, uh, how did you guys go about marketing and acquiring your first customers and then over time acquiring customers? Our first 100 customers uh, we got by emailing them and asking them to use Intercom. It was pretty blunt. Um, it's, it, it's funny though, because whenever I talk to startups about this, they say, how did you get your first customers? And I say, oh, I emailed them. And I can show you like the first 10 pages of my Gmail account. It's just me emailing people saying, would you like to try this product Intercom? It's going to help you talk to your customers. And, and you know, my conversion rate was probably like one in 10, which meant I, maybe I sent like a thousand emails or something like that. But every email was handwritten with like, a, I, I designed a specific screenshot. This is like in 2011. There's tools to automate some of this now. But uh, I like designed a specific screenshot of how Intercom would look for that particular customer. And, uh, and, uh, you know, over the course of, I want to say, like a month, we started growing customers and then customers started talking about us and that got us to 100. Whenever I tell young founders that, they sort of say, hey, Des, is there not an easier way to automate all this? And I think the I'm wary of people who aren't willing to put the, uh, those errors in because every single email you send 
uh, you get a reply. Sometimes the reply is like, wait, what does it do? And you refine your pitch. Or sometimes they're asking for like proof points and you refine your email. Sometimes they don't reply at all and you realize you're not getting enough attention. And then sometimes they try it and they don't sign up because they didn't find value. So I think you shouldn't automate away stuff that's actually customer discovery. It, for sure, like you could use Outreach or Salesoft to spit out millions of emails, but you're actually trying to understand how to grow your business. You're not just trying to automate it away. So I think like it's it's good to put in the kind of the graft or the hard yards uh, at the start uh, while you're still learning. Once we got our first hundred, how did we grow from there? It was a combination of like intercom benefits from a little bit of virality in the sense that you see intercom in other products, you see it on websites, it says powered by intercom, you click it, it tells you what our product is. We also put a massive effort into content marketing. Like I wrote, I guess like 90 or 95 of the first 100 blog posts on the intercom blog. And it was all about stuff that our target customers would want to read. And we put a great effort into like, you know, marketing those blog posts, like making sure we're resident in the resident and relevant in the right communities. And, uh, and just generally growing the awareness of intercom itself. Uh, and that kind of helped propel us onwards. So when someone said, you should try the intercom thing, people would say, oh, like the thing I saw on that site or, oh, like the blog post I just saw or the talk I just saw Des give or whatever. So it was just a full on like uh, assault of like content and virality, I think is how the brand built. We also like um, probably disproportionately to others, we put a lot of investment, uh, our CEO own put a lot of investment specifically into like the design of our landing pages. We are always obsessed with telling a really cohesive story from start to finish. And over the years, we've evolved our methods, but like we had some really cool versions where like we would have like a set of animals explaining the, the story of Intercom, like, and you know, like, you know, the, the, the lemur would be the customer and the giraffe would be the, the business or whatever. And like, it was a very like children's storybook style, really simple, easy to understand story that I think just really resonated with the market. And it just kind of it really just gave people a fondness or affinity for Intercom, which really helped as well. So do you think the complexity of SaaS software is all like there just being so many micro SaaS companies around just makes it ununderstandable for like the modern customer unless explained in a really broken down way? I think the, the yes is the short answer. And I'll, I'll, I'll say more because obviously you, you know, yes isn't a great answer. Um, I think we all believe like you know, like I'm passionate about product and I care about like, you know, how businesses support their customers and that, like, that's what I'm all about. Um, but I have to realize our customers don't care about that as much as I do. So they're not going to read all the nuance and all like the 11th bullet point or whatever on the page. You need to start with like a simple, believable, explainable narrative as to why you are the best at what you do. And, uh, and if you can't get that point across, you will always kind of struggle if you're relying on the nuance, if you're relying on people really putting their research in. Sure, you can go and engage Forrester and Gartner and, and, and they'll like they'll do the homework for you and come back to you with like a simpler graph or positioning or whatever. But like I think the more nuanced and like uh, fussy your differentiation is, uh, the harder it is to actually just follow. Right. Uh, and as a result, customers will like, you know, if a customer has to really put in like so much research just to work out why you're a little bit better, it doesn't work. I think the proliferation of SaaS, there's just now so many tools in the stack. There's like 5,000 MarTech tools. There's like God knows how many support tools. Uh, there's like plenty of like bots and chatbots and all that sort of stuff these days as well. I think that has de definitely like muddied up the messaging a bit. So you, if you really want to stand out, you need a compelling brand, compelling brand promise like of what you'll actually do and clear examples that are just very hard to dispute or question, very easy to understand. And then ideally in, in product usage and activation, very easy to get to as well. 
And uh, I think if you have that, you can, you can stand out from the crowd. But I think people really underestimate, even as you walk along the halls of Web Summit here, people really underestimate how um, how samey the whole world gets. Like if you walk up and down the alpha stage or beta stage where all the early stage startups are, like we do email marketing analytics, we do marketing analytics for email, we do, you know, it's just like, you know, you're, you're kind of, your head is spun listening to all these pitches on top of each other. And then you're trying to imagine what does a world look like when your MarTech stack includes like 27 of these things and how they all talk to each other. So no wonder when somebody comes out, be it like, uh, you know, to take it, take the lens off intercom for a second, let's say um, MailChimp or HubSpot or someone comes out and says, we will take care of all your bland needs. We have a complete single suite, suite of tools. You can see how people are like, oh, thank you, because that re relieves me of the, the, you know, the 27 decisions plus the like the whatever it is, 27 times 26 integrations that you have to get to make the whole thing work. And, uh, and I think that's just we're going through a phase of like, you know, the world of software is one of like bundling and unbundling. And I think we're going through a phase of like, you know, um, and I think, like, you know, obviously 2022 is, is accelerating this. We're seeing a lot of like uh, consolidation back onto like, even if there are two better individual tools, I would rather if I can do my support and like, you know, my support and my automation and my chatbots all on one platform, that'd be better, even though it might be. Like even if there is an edge to every individual tool, the complexity is just never worth it, and and like that's certainly been our experience as well. But speaking of that, then you, Intercom has added so many categories, and they've been able to handle the challenging positioning issues of doing quite a lot. What do you have to say about that? I I think it's a complimentary question. Um, it's hard to like you know, I think we can be pretty clear about what Intercom is and does. But whenever we actually end up in a discussion uh, with a customer, you have to go a level deeper immediately, right? So like, uh, so I think as a uh, maybe as an umbrella brand, people get the idea that intercom equals like you know, uh, communication between businesses and customers, probably inside your product or on your website. I think that's that's what people get. When you actually like, if, if your business comes to us and says, "Hey, we're thinking about buying intercom," very quickly we need to like break out of that mold and say. Who in your business? And you say sales. Oh, okay. Well, then let's talk to you about our convert use case or it's support. Okay, let's talk to you about why we're better at support. But I think, um, like, the the pressure uh, having more than one offering for more than one buyer, the pressure from that is not just on the product team and like, well, that's a lot of software to build. It's also the brand architecture and the brand umbrella and making sure that you can have a narrative at the top that doesn't outrule a support buyer uh, or say an en engage or an engagement buyer, right? Uh, but at the same time, like it entices them to go one click deeper to find out what aggregate all that up. We end up with like two different teams still, two different purchasers and like two different competitive landscapes. So you have to like, you know, so I say like, thank you for the form in which you raised the question, but I'll just say it's hard work. Like that complexity does not come for free. Uh, could you repeat that last sentence again? Sure. That complexity, uh, like it adds up. So you might think, hey, we can sell uh, support software and uh, let's say onboarding software like product or something like that you get extra revenue from selling more things, but you get a lot of complexity. And I think one mistake of this generation of software companies is there's a chronic underestimation of how much complexity hurts, both in terms of dollar cost, productivity cost, understandability cost, like complexity is expensive and you should really, really price that in when you make any decision. So this is a bit of an overarching question. It is, what is your approach to product? Start with an understanding of the problem. Uh, that's the first, you know, you can't build a product until you understand a problem. And the understanding of the problem has to be specific enough to uh, speak to the hearts and minds of the people who experience the problem, and yet abstract enough to cover all of them. So, like, you can't be like, 
you know, customer communication software for dentistry, right? Because you're going to outrule the rest of the market. So you need to find the right level of abstraction where the market's big enough, but also uh, you're specific enough such that everyone gets it immediately. It's a one-to-one -one mapping between problem and solution. So, you, no, so first principle is start with an understanding of the problem. Secondly, think big, start small, and move fast. So you have to understand the overall thing you're trying to build. You also have to have a path of what's, what's your release version 0.01, where you can kind of fire the tracer bullet and see actually what's happening. Like, uh, well, let's ship this thing and see if people use it. And then speed is just essential in any startup because I, I'm a huge believer in like, the speed of iteration of any product team or any company in general is like probably the biggest factor in like whether or not they'll be successful is how quickly they can ship and learn. So that's our second principle. So think big, start small, move fast. And then third is just understand that shipping is like the beginning of the process. It's not the end, right? And I think that's like something a lot of software teams, they like burn the midnight oil, get the thing live, and then they sit back and relax. But actually, once it goes live, that's game time. That's now when you're walking onto the pitch, not when you're walking off it. And that's the time when you need to be like drinking the customer feedback, reacting quickly, tweaking, nodding, adjusting, etc. And I think if you don't get that, you often, you'll you'll produce shelfware. It might be beautiful shelfware, but if people aren't feeling the products alive and adapting to their needs, they won't use it for a long time and then they'll just sit on a shelf somewhere. Speaking of which, then what do you have to say about reacceleration and why startups are doing that? I think um, every startup that I've talked to has had what I think the kids refer to as a banger of a 2021, right? It was a strong year, 2021. And, um, and I think 2022 hasn't uh, slapped as much to speak in the language of the children of today. And um, and I think so a lot of people are noticing that like, you know, things that they started doing in 2021 aren't paying off the way they thought they would in 2022. And in some cases, the rate of trajectory of their growth has adjusted or adapted or shrank or, or not basically not met their expectations. So I, w I gave a presentation here uh, about reacceleration and there's re really just two core ideas in it. One is that the first and primary source of acceleration in any business is by finding your target customer, your ICP, your bullseye customer, people have different phrases for it, and making sure that your business is as simple and optimized for them as possible. And the simplicity is a really important piece of that because I think, again, during good times, people add complexity. They throw in more products, more options, more types of tactics, etc., more acquisition channels. They just throw everything at the wall because like, times are good and everything seems like it's working because the, the underlying tectonic shift is working, right? Um, all of that shit costs a lot of complexity uh, and complexity slows things down, right? You've got loads more price plans, loads more products, loads more acquisition channels, loads more like types of customers, etc. So the first job really in, in any acceleration uh, project is to find what are we doing, like what, where is the healthiest core of our business and how do we optimize the entire company around that? When you've done that, then you have the opportunity to layer things on top, knowing that by layering anything else on top, you actually do run the risk of adding complexity, right? But generally speaking, the options I talk about a lot are like, you can move up market, so sell same software to bigger customers. That usually comes with a heavy cost from an R&D perspective, you have to add a lot more features. Or you can say, same customer, but we're going to sell them more things. So maybe they use you for support, but maybe they also use a different tool for something else, and you go and build a version of that different tool. Now you're selling two products to the same person, so you increase your ACV. That can be a source of acceleration. A third option is, within your existing customers, sell into different departments, so different buyers, same customer. 
So in, in that case, it's similar to the previous, but except for it carries an additional marketing challenge, you need to now break out of the like sales department into the whatever product department. So you have a, a marketing kind of challenge there as well, along with the innovation challenge. And then lastly, like there's like verticalization. So that you say like, hey, I noticed we have a lot of customers in the fintech space. Let's go hard at fintech. And that would mean producing domain-specific language, potentially uh, tweaking or skinning your product specific to that customer, different routes to market, possibly different price plans, if it makes sense. And that's another source of acceleration. Now, I will still go back to my first point and say, you only do those things once you're sure your base is solid. If your base isn't solid, none of this shit will help you. So speaking of moving off market, when is the right time to start thinking about moving into enterprise space? I think when you believe that your rate of growth is on course to saturate the markets you're in, that's usually the point at which you have to look for new markets. So as in, we have, you know, when you can sort of say, hey, we're winning most of the deals in this space, we're clearly emerging as the de facto go-to standard. Uh, at current rate of adoption, as customers exit off their annual contracts and buy a new thing, they're mostly buying us. And when all of that is true, then you say, it sounds like we need a new plan for like, it could be for a year from now or whatever, but at some point we're gonna run out of customers. So then your option is where do you go? So if you want to go into enterprise, that means going up market. The best thing to do there is to say uh, we should talk to our largest customers within our current segment and see what starts to crumble, what starts to break. Talk to a few stretch customers, people who you can't serve, uh, and work out why can't they adopt you. And that starts to hint at the origin of the, the enterprise roadmap. It's much more complicated than anyone gives it credit for. People think it's just lash on a Salesforce integration and maybe a, a few bits of reporting and you're done. It's not that at all. It's a full-on like role-based access control, permissioning. It's it's multiple different types of reporting, multiple different integrations. Changes your sales model, changes your service model, changes your support model. Uh, so you have to really like embrace it for the challenge that it is. And I think like the the guiding principle that we always follow is one step at a time. So it, you, it might be tempting to jump from like a you know if your target customer is like you know 100 person startups, it might be tempting to say let's go for 1,000 person startups, but like that's like that might be like two or three steps too far and you might find yourself with a big hole in your customer right where like uh you're good for zero to 100 and then you start being good around a thousand but there's a big gap here all your 100 person companies will all churn out in that black hole where you don't support them so that, you have to think about this whole thing holistically could you give an example of a company that's managed to do this well this transition i think stripe and slack are the two that come to mind um where i think they managed to deploy the enterprise features without junking up the experience for the regular customers uh, and then they managed to layer on the the new product lines that the enterprise customers would need uh, and realize the additional uh, cost benefits or the price benefits from the enterprise customers i think like you know without knowing the internals of either company i i, I think like they'd be the two i'd point to where like it didn't feel like the product moved up market for us it feels like the product's been pretty stationary in a good way uh, stable maybe is another way of saying it um, but you can see that they're now winning bigger customers and they're like getting all of their right places into Gartner and Forrester waves and quadrants and all that so I think the, there are ways to do it but it, it really it, the, the word I just keep coming back to is you need a cohesive strategy it, it's not just a yes let's add enterprise you need to think about customer velocity how quickly does a customer move between the modes and not leaving any kind of holes in your own offering as well so that people can actually grow with you so the last question for you is of a personal kind. What would you be doing in your life if not this right now? I think I'm 
the thing I enjoy most is just learning and explaining, honestly. Uh, it drives my friends and my family kind of crazy. I just like to explain things. Um, even this interview is kind of fun for me, you know. Um, so I, I would probably be either like a one of those um, angel investor slash uh, advisor slash writer slash blogger type people. Or I'd be like a more traditional like university lecturer. It depends. In, the, in this fictional Des world, it depends. Did I do the intercom thing or not? If I didn't do the intercom thing at all, maybe I'd just be a university lecturer. Uh, if I did do the intercom thing, I think I'd probably be, uh, yeah, one of those people who like is known for like advising investing and startups and having like useful things to say to like early stage companies. That was amazing. It's great listening to you.